0: Welcome back to Cosentone Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Lady Lake Chapter 5. Uh, so this this chapter is all kinds of messed up. Uh, this is picking up after cliffhanger ending of last book uh, with Siri in the world of N.L. or at least a world that conquered. And uh, basically is a series of vignettes as she lives time there. How that affects things going forward, uh how it affects her psychology, and uh how it's pretty miserable despite its magical and fairy tale-esque look. It's hiding something very dark and very, very horrible underneath. In this, you have basically you have the three three characters that are pulling Siri in one direction or another and then you have Little Horse returning so you add a force to that wheel so you know Ciri is like the center of the wheel and then uh, Buran, Arodin uh, Little Horse and Avalok are uh, the four spokes of the wheel and uh, they're pulling her in a different direction. Matter of fact uh, they each have a name given to them by the unicorns Avalok is the fox Arodin the sparrowhawk uh, and Oberon, the Alder King. In this messed up scenario, basically, Ciri is reduced as a person. She's not a living human being in their eyes, really. Matter of fact, the fact that she's human is disgusting to them. What, what we have is you have the king, Oberon, who is less than enthused with her, but hides it. Avlak, who feels a sense of shame. With her because she reminds him of lara uh and of course he was betrothed lara but then you have eridan who's very much the i don't care you're just an object and they all dehumanize her or in their words probably be elf her in their own ways avalak treats her as nothing more than the product of lara and even calls her the daughter of creganon even though that was you know centuries and centuries ago that Laura had an affair with a human uh, as far as he's concerned because of the way time passes here and the way time works here and the way they perceive time that was merely a drop in the pond who cares right and so her dad her mom doesn't matter child of Laura and Crigannon even though those are so far removed from her that she has no concept really of truly who they are Ariden, uh sees her as the swallow, Ziriel, the person to open the gateway, the key, the object. And in within that, you have Ciri who's struggling with keeping her humanity um, and, and keeping what remains of anything that she's learned over the time. Uh, you know, she has that moment where she has in her inner monologue of, uh, remembering Vesemir's words, you know, If they're about to hang you, ask for a glass of water. You never know what's gonna happen in the meantime. She's stalling. She's basically been pushed in this direction. Um, and she has that vision with Visigodo where apologize apologizes, like, I pointed you towards this, this is, you know, this is part of your destiny and that's the problem. You should have the right to choose. And this entire chapter is about what she's allowed to do, and how she's allowed to do it, and if she's even allowed to choose. It's a brilliant commentary on the objectification of women, uh, and there's a commentary here about the way in which certain societies... In uh, certain individuals, view women not as people but as objects to bear children. That is what Ciri is here for, and that's why it's so messed up. Is that she has no choice in the matter? As far as they're concerned, they want the elder blood back, and the the human impurities that have been added need to be cleansed out, so they need to re the Elder Blood back into the bloodline, because, well, they've lost the ability to travel through time and space, and, uh, you know, with that comes the fact that their, their empire is dwindling. The one thing that strikes me about the NL is they are alien. So very alien, but also so familiar at the same time. They are every authoritarian uh, government you can think of, but also have such a strange worldview that they seem so utterly alien. Uh, not only from their their description they're they're tall they're long limbed they're just they they seem otherworldly because they are, but also the way they think about things. Time to them is a matter of perspective. Uh, th- there's that beautiful scene in all its messed up glory where uh it, where Oberon is f- beginning his courting of Siri and she's anxious and she begins blowing bubbles into her drink and he questions why she's anxious he's so confused by this um and he he blows the bubbles too just to see what it's like what what is this doing what, what is the point of this almost like it is a you know trying to understand uh, a caged animal, trying to empathize with it, but you don't really understand it. And, uh, the way they talk about things, uh, belief in superiority, but also the way in which they perceive things is from that perspective. There's that bit where, uh, Siri talks about the way that the people look at her, and how there's this contempt in their eyes, and it's because she does not speak the NL language, naturally. It was a foreign language to her, and even then, the, the elven language is, that they speak here is a, a different dialect, a different branch from the one that she learned. She learned the, the language of the uh the, the uh the people of the hills, uh, the, the elves of her world, which they see as uh, the NL see as distant cousins, perhaps even inferior to them so there are words wrong, and, uh, you know, the, there's, there's syntax incorrect, and so they actively look down upon her because of that. And then, of course, there's that bit where she says that she found out that in the NL language, it is common to ask rhetoricals, like, almost every sentence ends on a rhetorical, uh, because they want to prove that they're so superior that that has become part of their language. That they inherently ask you questions and assume you don't know because it's a rhetorical question. The answer should be obvious to them anyway, and they sort of rub it in people's faces. The way that they talk about other beings is is of note. They they talk about themselves as though they are of a different breed. They they very much espouse. Uh, Aryan ideology which is uh, the very fucked up ideology uh, that that led to uh, many eugenics and uh, was most prominent during the Nazi regime of Germany the belief that this kind of person this kind of look is descended from great beings and these great beings are important uh, and are godlike it's ridiculous it's stupid um, it reminds me of, like, there, there was one of these uh, eugenics philosophies called Spinal Theory, I believe it was called, which is all about, like, color. Uh, and in had something to do with the way your head is shaped, is assigned a color or something. It, it's like the most bonkers philosophy that you've ever heard of, because it's intentionally done to make no sense. Because what it wants to do is confuse you to then say, hey, these kind of people are important, and then basically make you fall in line. It, it, it's one of those philosophies that is nothing but word salad, done to, to merely prop up the, those in power and nothing else. And, I mean, Eridan even has a line about evolution did not give you uh, enough wrinkles in your brain to understand. He straight up uses the uh, the old theory. That the, for a long time in humanity's history, we measured skull length and, and width and all that jazz as sort of a way to measure intelligence as though the size of your head or your jaw placement or nose, uh, you know, ridge or whatever has any bearing on that kind of thing. It doesn't. But that is the way in which these people think. They are inherently supremacists. They're inherently eugenicists, and this is just the way they think. They think so alien compared to us. And yet they're very familiar because there were people like this one time in history, and probably still are. One thing I think is interesting is the way in which the the three main NL, Avalok, Aradin, and Oberon, not only the way they treat Ciri, the way they act around Ciri, and the way that they objectify her, Uh, But the way they speak to her is different Oberon barely says a word He uh, he's mostly quiet. He listens Um, He plies her with food and wine later drugs uh, and he listens and then he attempts to impregnate her and With Avalok he talks to her as though he's a friend And there's that point in her inner monologue where she's like... She didn't realize until now just how dangerous Avalok was. Avalok hides his hostility. To quote Tolkien, do not try the patience of wizards. That uh, he is a scholar. He was at one time betrothed to Lara Doran. He cares about the Elder Blood. And because of that, he can have a professional detachment. And... The easiest, most common way to get someone to come to your side is to treat them as an equal. And so that's what he does. And he says a lot of stuff, some of it true, some of it not. Uh, And when Siri tests him is when he finally snaps. We have that moment, you know, if if you didn't have her eyes, you know, and he has to stop himself from killing her, you know. And then Aridin does not even treat her as anything, she's a piece of meat, until their cabin discussion. He challenges her to a race, she wins the race, and then he talks to her. And the way he talks to her is very different compared to when they first met. Uh, when they first meet in the early part of the chapter, he calls her a golden nugget in a pile of compost. Uh, and, you know, just the, the mere sight of her is disgusting to him. Uh, then when he takes her to the cabin, he talks to her on more equal ground. There is still this sense of unease. And I think there's this commentary going on, uh, especially because uh, the way in which her internal monologue talks about this, she sees the, 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 the layout of the cabin and she's like, I, I feel like I've read this in a novel somewhere, like one of those uh, novels I found in the Church of Malidale, which Church of Malidale being a, you know, church devoted to fertility, um, you know, had steamy romance novels, and there's this implication, uh, I'm not sure if it's intentional or not, the way in which romance stories tend to go in a very cliched way, not all of them, but certain kinds go in a certain way. You have the, the, the female protagonist is given the good guy and Bad boy, right? The good guy's clean, wonderful, awesome, but boring, right? And then the the bad boy is dark, mysterious, and charming. And that's what's enticing. And so when you have that with Aridin and Ophelag, you compare the two. You very much clearly have the good guy, bad boy uh, feel. But they're both assholes. And they're both using Siri for their own ends. Um, and she even makes that joke. You know, I've I've sworn I've read this in a book somewhere. And then when it's revealed that this entire conversation is politically motivated on eridan's behalf, she goes, "Ah, you know, there's just this. The there's this hint in here. You, you know, it's not major of like making fun of romance tropes and using that as an in for us to understand this alien world, these alien people, these this alien culture." And put us in Siri's place and then pull the rug out from beneath us and prove there was no bad boy, there was no good guy. They're all the same, they're all hassles. And I think that really comes into play when she, uh, we, the, the final two moments with, with Oberon. There's this bit of comedy that I think is really funny, uh, that it's she is basically being told, You're going to stay here, you're going to be a breeding stock, we're going to. Impregnate you. Once we have your child, we'll let you go. Whatever. They refuse to teach her how to use her innate elder blood abilities and uh, You know basically say we will take you back when it's done and as we know the perception of time Is so different who's to say if they're even telling the truth or or if by the time that she had the child She would already be dead Uh, and then Eredin throws in that thing about how uh, time has it differently here, which is mostly BS Uh, but he does have a point in the way that they view time is so different that who's to say. Basically, Oberon can't get it up. Just give him some Viagra. They give him all these aphrodisiacs and stuff and it doesn't work. Uh, and he fears that using magic will taint the bloodline. So he doesn't do that. And... You know, he's old, he's described as this beautiful but incredibly ancient man, right? So you think it's it's about old age, and then you find out when he snaps, after, uh, her pen the time with him, you know, uh, where she quotes, you know, at least Aridin has the kindness to say to me that I'm a gold nugget in a, in a heap of compost. And he says, really? That's all he has to say? I'd say more a diamond on the finger of a corpse. He breaks because it, it wasn't about age. He finds her inherently disgusting. Her mere presence is revolting. And that is all kinds of messed up. And then he shows her, which is like, I want to be back with my family, my friends. He shows her the looking glass and then shows her the death. Death of Yen being uh, scrapped to a bunch of bricks and then thrown in the water to die drowned to death, and then uh, Geralt's frozen to death in the mountains. She knows this is a falsehood, but it's his way of paying her back, that he's having to degrade himself to keep the purity of his bloodline intact, get this blood back into the NL to reclaim their empire. He has to sleep and have Intercourse with this disgusting thing to him, you know, and no matter how much they dress her up, put her in makeup, feed him after her DCX, it doesn't work. Because her mere fact of existence isn't revolting. Uh, and, And then... Little Horse shows up, uh, you know, after she, she tries to make an escape. She, she bats Eridan in a really funny way, that he's too tall for the bridge. Uh, but then Little Horse shows up, and there's this really interesting thing. If you remember back in Time of Contempt, the Unicorns debated killing her. And uh, they decided not to, uh, because of what she did for Little Horse. And so now Little Horse is pretty pain and kind. And we get the sense from the other Unicorns that they don't really like her. Little Horse is the exception here. And uh, they're willing to teach her the power, but not for any other reason that gets her out of here. She does not belong here. And they are, in effect, metaphorically, I suppose, uh, the guardians of the multiverse. The unicorns naturally have the ability to travel through time and space. And the NL have abused this power that they received... Uh, ...and conquered worlds. The last thing Little Horse shows her before they begin traveling is the mass grave. And we keep hearing about these slaves, and 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 Ciri thinks that there are other elves, shorter... Uh, ...but then she finds out that they have canines, which elves in The Witcher do not have canine teeth... Uh, like humans do and she finds out that these slaves are humans and that the masquerade is humans that this was not the NL's original world that they sort of have been here For God knows how long and sort of become complacent because they're stuck And that's what the eugenics thing was all about some of them have the ability, but they're dwindling in number the in the knowing ones like of luck can travel between the worlds but it's, it's an unpredictable process, and it's not something they can pass on, and their numbers are becoming so thin that it's not worth it anymore. And the Red Riders, a.k.a. the Wild Hunt, which we finally see, you know, in person, uh, rather than the Spectres, can only show up in other worlds as a spectral form, not being able to conjure enough power to fully materialize in another plane. And the Unicorns know if they have her they have the gateway, which means that they need to get her out of here, regardless of their feelings on her. I like how this really reveals just how the the, the way in which the, the Witcher world has, you know, changed. We had been hinting since the short stories that unicorns were extinct, and then we met a unicorn. And uh, the, the the way the elves think is so vastly different. But then, you know, we, we got hints of the the con- uh, conjunction of the spheres and what that means. And so now we're getting the fuller picture that there's this multiverse, and no one really belongs to the Witcher world. Every world has sort of had stragglers from other worlds crossover, and it used to be the gateway used to be open, and it's closed now. And apparently, when the right the White Frost comes, which Aflach explains, explicitly in scientific terms, so that it cannot be misconstrued, uh, is it's an ice age. That there was no magical doom power. There wasn't any entropy at the end of the universe. This is a natural life cycle of a planet. Because the large majority of the sphere in which most of the story takes place in, the, the planet... You know, most of life is is gathered in the one northern area, the northern hemisphere. They will have a hard time surviving the Ice Age. And those that do survive will be, will be reduced to barbarism. And they will have to find other ways to survive. Society will collapse as they know it. It is an end of times. A time of contempt. A time of chaos. But it's not magical. It's not you know, the end times, it's not good versus evil, it's just an ice age, it's climate change, it's the way in which planets change and evolve due to human interference and other interferences, uh, and the way in which it renews itself, it is, it's a natural life cycle, and I I think that's, you know, such a fun way to, to really bring this epic saga in a way on a new level there's been a lot of inversions a lot of laughing and fantasy tropes and so now this takes the classic big doom prophecy and brings it back down to reality while also still having unicorns and traveling through time and space uh have your cake and eat it too i suppose um, that's classic Spukowski. Uh, there's a lot of really great moments in this chapter of j- j- just showing how fucked up the situation is. That, that there, there's a nice parallel with the NL to the Dryads. The Dryads, you know, took men as, uh, as sex slaves. And ceres the same way here. Uh, that all they care about is the offspring. And there's just this sense of the, the, the way in which Ciri is perceived by the NL is not so different... From the way the kings have perceived her, the way the lodge has perceived her, the way Amir has perceived her, the the, the way in which Volgefort has perceived that she is an object. She is her womb. She is her blood. She is the child of the elder blood. She isn't Cyrilla. She isn't Siri. she is the object. One thing of interest is how Siri perceives the child. Uh, that is being forced upon her, too, is the fact that she sees the, the child as a parasite. And I remember when I first read this, you know, I was in university, you know, just just at turned 20, and I was a guy. And I didn't really get it, because everything- I, I grew up in a, p- a very particular area that viewed childbirth as this great, important, beautiful thing. And then I talked with someone, one of my classmates, and you know uh, she had the same perspective as Siri and I thought that was very interesting that that if you look at it the the nine months in which a child grows is a parasitic relationship uh the mother has to suffer for the child to live and in a way this reflects Siri that she has to suffer for the NL to live and you have a choice there and uh, you know it, it, it's talking, about the, the the nature of a woman's right to choose and the way in which we talk about these things, and I think that is thoroughly interesting. The very specific verbiage used of the parasite that grows in me, like just the way in which she views it, is very much similar to the way in which the N.L. view the human part of the elder blood something that needs to be cleansed and so it's it's an interesting look because so much of this the saga has been about parenthood and about the way in which we view that kind of thing to then contrast it and have that really affect our main character beautiful stuff and now with the flight with little horse she has the option now knowing how her powers mostly work That she is the, uh, the Way of Mayan translation, the the, the master of places and times, or a more accurate translation, lady of space and time. She can go anywhere, be anything. She has the right to choose. that has been a central thesis of this entire series, and what it's been all about. And now we're going to see the repercussions of that. Because no matter how much you should have the right to choose, there will always be others who think otherwise and sometimes choosing means sacrifice next time i'm joined by josh to talk about a completely you know different tone chapter uh about a minor character see you then bye